0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In the sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy Our second scripture reading is a continuation of what we were reading earlier. So it starts off by saying, For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. Or Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he was protected. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter, Herodias, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. So today, we are talking about what many consider to be perhaps one of the most disturbing passages in the entire Gospel of Mark. We're talking about the execution of John the Baptist. And I think with this execution, we are given kind of a perception of what the world was that Jesus lived in. And I think if we're going to try to summarize that world in a single word, we would say that it was brutal. It was a brutal, violent world. And today, I actually want to take some time to paint a picture for you of what that world looked like. Because you can't really understand what Jesus was trying to do unless you understand the world out of which his message was birthed. So, to begin with, I want to talk to you a little bit about this passage that we just read between John the Baptist and this guy, Herod. His actual name is Herod Antipas, And I know that many of you probably don't know who either of these people are, so I want to take some time to explain to you who they are, and then that's going to give us an avenue through which we can actually discuss this issue. So the first person we need to talk about is John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist, he was a man who lived in the area of Galilee. I know, it's upsetting. (laughs) It is. (laughs) He lived in the area of Galilee. I'm going to show you a map of Galilee pretty soon so you can see what that area looked like. But for now, just believe me. And know that he had amassed quite a large following of people who liked his teachings. Now, what made John unique is that he would go out into the desert and he would take his disciples out there and he would immerse them in water, ritually cleansing them. And this is why he gained the name baptizer, because the word in Greek, "baptizo" literally means to dip. Now, what's important for you to understand is that John was not the first person to come up with this idea of dipping people into water. It's a very ancient idea in Israel. The idea actually came from the priests who used to oversee all the religious services. Now, it's very important for you to understand that the priests were not people like me, an average person. Priests were from the aristocracy. They were the upper class. They were the people who basically ruled everything, and that's why they got to perform those religious services. And so what they would do before they would offer a sacrifice, before they would sacrifice animals, they would ritually cleanse themselves in baths. And so as is very common in most societies, the lower class wanted to emulate the upper class. And so these washing rituals, they started to trickle down into the lower classes. And we have actually found all over Israel, they've been digging up archaeological sites, and they have found these baths everywhere that people used to bathe in. You can see them right there. That's an example of one of those baths. So, John the Baptist, he did not create this concept, but he used it. And what you also have to understand about John's followers is that they believe that he was the Messiah, the Messiah, which literally means they thought he was going to be a king. Now, we know this because to this day, there's a group of people in the Middle East who actually still believe that John is the Messiah. They are known as the Mandaeans. the Mandaeans, And they have scriptures very much like we have a Bible. And in their scriptures, it portrays John as being the Messiah. And they're waiting for him to come back in much the same way that many Christians are waiting for Jesus to come back one day. I told you a long time ago when I first started talking about Mark, that many scholars believe that jesus was originally a disciple of john the baptist and that when john got arrested he kind of broke off on his own and did his own ministry well we heard about that back in chapter one we're now in chapter six and so today we're going to talk a little bit more about that arrest so john he was arrested by a man named herod antipas herod antipas so this is what he looked like he's actually a pretty good looking guy right not bad so he was a son. He was one of four sons to a man named Herod the Great. That was his father, Herod the Great. They all had the name Herod in there somewhere. So, you know, it gets a little confusing. But Herod the Great, he was a father. And the only reason you would know who Herod the Great is is because in our Gospels, around the time that Jesus is being born, Herod is the one who's out there trying to uh, kill all the innocents out there. So, Herod supposedly died around the time that Jesus was born, which is to be about 4 BC. That date is actually going to become important for you to remember here, because we're going to be talking a little bit about dates today. So 4 BC is when Jesus was born. So Herod, when he dies, his territory has to get all split up, and the Roman emperor decides, as opposed to giving it to one son, he's going to split it up among the four. And this guy, Herod Antipas, he gets the area of Galilee, of Galilee. Now, when he gets this area, he finds out that John the Baptist is preaching. And if you're the ruler of an area, and you have a guy who's amassing a large following, what are you probably going to do in that situation? You're going to want to get rid of him, right? Because he's a threat to your reign. And that's exactly what he did. He sends some soldiers out, he has them arrested, he has them put in prison. And that leads us to the scripture that we read today. Now, in the scripture today, it tells us, that Herod Antipas he's throwing a birthday party for himself which is what we all like to do right? throw birthday parties for ourselves and he's invited the wealthiest citizens of Galilee to come to this party now when they come to Galilee they're actually going to the newly built city of Tiberias James will you circle that for me alright so that is Tiberias right there you can see that on the screen and Tiberias just so you know prior to him that city didn't really exist he made it because he was now the ruler and that's where he wanted his palace to be. So he creates this new palace. He wants to show it off to everybody and he invites the wealthiest citizens to come. So they're there and we're losing kids like crazy in this service. They are, just not, they are not lasting very long through the sermon. <laughs> it's probably the content. I understand. I would leave too. <laughs> so the stepdaughter of Herod Antipas is dancing for the crowd. And Herod Antipas is so pleased by this that he wants to give her a gift. Now, I want you to know, first of all, that this is highly unlikely this would occur. Because, A, you need to know that the aristocracy, they were not entertainers. The aristocracy was there to be entertained. And, two, it would go against the Jewish sensibilities of propriety to have a young woman like that dance for him. So, Let's just assume for the moment, though, that it did happen, because it helps us with the story. So he says, you can have anything you want, up to half my kingdom. So she goes to her mom, consults her mother, and her mother says, hey, why don't you ask for the head of John the Baptist? So she goes, and she makes the request. Now, the reason why she asked for this is because, supposedly, John the Baptist, he was very critical of her marriage to Herod Antipas. But it tells us in the scriptures that Herod Antipas, he's really sad about this because, you know, he had a good relationship with John. You know, he liked him, he liked to listen to him. And so he was a little bit grieved to have to send these soldiers to go execute him. And he needed to do this, however, to comply with the oath that he had taken and with his stepdaughter's request. Now, I think many of you probably know what I'm going to say right here. Do you know what I'm going to say? Historically inaccurate. Okay, just so we all know, the way this story is portrayed, it's not possible. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why it's not possible. First thing we know is that Mark, he thinks that John is being held in Tiberias, the place that James circled right there. That's where he thinks he's being held. And he assumes that he's in the palace and he's in some prison underneath the palace right there. But we know from historical documents that is not where John the Baptist was being held. He was held in a place called the Fortress of Machairus. And that is exactly where it stood on a hill. It was built originally by his father as an outpost to guard against people coming in from the east. So, if you want to know exactly where it is, we'll jump forward and James can give you a basic idea of where it was located. It was right next to the Dead Sea. So, do you see that right there, what he's circling in that area? Okay, so... Show them where Tiberius is now on this map. Up there. Okay. So, even if there was a horse that could go 50 miles an hour, which there isn't, or even if he could get multiple horses going all the way down there and back, it would take him more than 20 hours to get to the fortress of Machairus and get back with John's head. So, that tells you, probably not possible, right? Now, if you've been here for a lot of my sermons, you know that I've been telling you that Mark keeps getting all these details wrong. And you might have been asking the question, which is, why does he get them wrong so often? Well, it's because Mark is not writing this gospel from here, from Israel. He's writing it from Rome, which is halfway across the Mediterranean. In fact, many scholars believe he may have never even set foot in this area of the world. So he has a very limited understanding of the geography of the area. The second issue with this whole thing is that actually it portrays Herod Antipas as really liking John. And you know what I'm going to tell you, that's not true either. I'll tell you right now, Herod Antipas, he didn't like John at all. He wanted to get rid of him like he wanted to get rid of everyone else who was in his way. Do you know how we know this? Because there was a historian, his name was Flavius Josephus, and Josephus He was a Jewish historian. He wrote about Jewish history. And he actually talks in one of his volumes about John the Baptist. And that's how we know that John the Baptist was actually at the fortress of Makairus. From what we can tell, John the Baptist was executed sometime between 28 and 30 CE. And it was done very, very quietly. What you have to appreciate is that at this time, the execution of leaders of movements was very very common let's say you all were part of my movement i was a leader and a roman official found out about me and that i was getting a group of people together well what they would do is they probably wouldn't even dispatch soldiers to arrest me and take me to prison what they would do is they would have some soldiers come right through that door come up to me and they would kill me sight on scene, right here now why do they do that because if you're following me and you watch me get killed right in front of your eyes, what does that do to my movement? It's over. That's why they did it. Now, this level of brutality, it's kind of hard for us to understand because if something like that were to happen today, what would we do? Well, we could call the police. We could do all kinds of things. We could go to court. You didn't have any of that back then. Let me give you an example of just how brutal this could be. So when Herod the Great came to power, he too was a very brutal man. And he knew that many of the priests, remember what I told you about priests? They're the highest level of society, they're the rulers. He knew that many of those people were not going to really jive with what he wanted to do. So he goes to what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is comprised of 71 priests. And he decides, you know what, we need to get rid of most of these people. So he decides he's just going to murder them, 46 of them in fact. And rather than having them arrested, what he did was he sent soldiers who broke into their homes, literally broke down the door, and murdered them right in front of their families. Now that's how the priests were treated. And those guys are at the top of the heap in terms of social order. You can imagine how the people on the bottom were treated. The commoners. Much, much worse. And every so often... The commoners, they would become really distraught with all of this threat of violence. And they would band together and try to revolt against Rome. One example of this occurred with this guy, Judas the Galilean. So where's this guy from, Judas? He's from Galilee, who also is from Galilee. We're talking about Jesus and we're talking about John the Baptist. They're all from the same area. So he descends on the city of Sepphoris. The city of Sepphoris. Now, the city of Sepphoris, it was a city of great wealth. Now, this city is also located about 5 miles away from another city or not a city but a little town, a hamlet of importance known as Nazareth. Now, who grew up in Nazareth? Jesus, Jesus did. Now, Sephorus, as I told you, it's a city of wealth. It's where all the wealthiest citizens of the Galilean area live. So what happens is Judas the Galilean, he descends on the city, he raids the royal armory, and he ends up plundering all these homes of the wealthy citizens there. And then he starts doling out God's justice to all these Jewish aristocrats. Well, Rome, they find out about this, and they dispatch some soldiers. Those soldiers, they show up, they find Judas the Galilean, and they lop off his head. That's the first thing they do. Then they take 2,000 of Judas's closest followers, and they crucify them in mass. 2,000 people at one time. We talk about one guy being executed by a cross, usually with two people on the side. Think about 2,000 people at one shot. Then, after they did that, they turned their attention to the citizens of Sephorus because the officials were mad that these people had not guarded their armory better. So the soldiers, they killed every single male in the city, and then they took the women and children and auctioned them off as slaves then they burned the entire city to the ground. This all happened in 6 AD. Jesus would have been about 10 years old. Now, as I told you, Nazareth, it's about five miles away from Sephorus. And it's elevated a little bit because it's on a plateau. So at night, he could have seen the city burning in the distance. And during the day, if he walked out or if he had looked down, He would have seen hundreds upon hundreds of people hanging from those crosses. Some of them were dead. And when you're dead on a cross, they didn't take you down. They left you up there so that you could be eaten up by animals and birds and bugs. And then there were some people who were suffering greatly. They hadn't died yet. And you can imagine, as he walked down the road, he would see these people, and he would see them all knowing that they had suffered a great deal of agony. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. You're 10 years old, and you see this. What does that do to your mind? How does that change who you are? How does that change how you look at the world? I think it would change it quite dramatically, don't you? I think it would make you think of the world quite differently, because when you looked at them, you would realize, if I do something like that, I could end up in the exact same position. And yet, 20 years later, Jesus himself would be hoisted up upon a cross, It seems that he was undeterred by their suffering. He wasn't so concerned with the people at Sepphoris. He wasn't so concerned by the execution of John the Baptist. In fact, I would say that he was emboldened by their example. Rather than give up on his beliefs, he was not going to run. He was willing to sacrifice everything for them. Now let me ask you a question. Is there anything in your life that you think you would be willing to to lay everything down for? Is there anything that you will be willing to sacrifice everything in your life for? Now usually when I ask that question, I get one of three responses. Most people would say, family, country, religion. So I think everybody in here, if I asked you that question, when it came down to it, I think if you had to, you would probably sacrifice your life for your family if you needed to. Less of you, but still a vast majority, if our country was in danger, you would probably fight for the country. But religion? Well, that's a whole different story. I don't know many people who are willing to die for their religious beliefs. Do you? Right now, there is a movement sweeping across the Middle East. It is known as IS, or Islamic State. The members of Islamic State, they adhere to a very violent and very extreme form of Islam. Islamic State is so extreme that in fact Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, they even find them distasteful. So that tells you a lot about IS and who they are. Everybody who they recruit, they tend to be in their late teens and early 20s. They're almost all social outcasts. And they feel as though their life doesn't matter. And IS recruiters work very, very hard to make sure these people feel included, to make sure that they feel like they're a part of something, that their lives are going to matter. And so many of these people sign up knowing that they are going to die in the long run. But yet they sign up anyway. Whenever IS conquers an area of the world, no matter how small, they hoist a flag in celebration of their success. Now, this flag, it reads in Arabic. It reads, There is no God but Allah. And then within the circle it reads, Allah, Messenger, Muhammad. Now their stated goal in doing all of this is to create an Islamic state that gets back to what they believe is the original intention of Islam, where God rules over the entire world. Muslims from all over the world have come together to fight Islamic State, because they realize that if they are successful, then the safety of countries all over the world are going to be endangered. Now, I want to ask you all a question, and this question is really important that you think about it, which is, what is the difference between the mentality of Jesus and the mentality of all those people who are willing to join Islamic State every month? And just in case you don't think that there are any similarities, let me point out a few to you. They're all willing to die for their religion, both of them. They're both undeterred by the people who have been killed before them. And they both want to see God ruling over the world. So what is the difference between Jesus' sacrifice for God and all of these kids who sacrifice for God every single month? Well, I think that there's a very big difference, actually. They both might be martyrs, but they are very, very different kinds of martyrs. So, it is one thing to stand up for your beliefs when you are the one being persecuted. It's a whole other thing to stand up for your beliefs when you are the one doing the persecuting. Whenever someone dies on behalf of the cause of IS... They are dying because they are trying to force people around them to believe what they believe. In fact, I would say that IS is very similar to the Roman government in that regard. They want to make sure that everybody conforms to their way of thinking, and the way they do it is through violence. They want to make sure nobody revolts. They are willing to murder men, women, and children with impunity to make sure everyone is in charge. So their martyrdom is a martyrdom of violence. And their message is a message of death. Now, that's Islamic State. That is not Islam. I want you to know there are two different things there. Let's contrast this with Jesus, though. So, Jesus, is he willing to die for his beliefs? Yes, he is, absolutely. Is Jesus want to see everybody conform to his way of thinking? Yes. Does Jesus want to see God rule over the world? Yes. But when Jesus goes to his death, does he defend himself? No. When Jesus goes to his death, does he fight anyone? No. He passively and peacefully allows it to happen. So what does that tell you? It tells you that his death is very different from that of I.S., that when he dies, he's dying to end the cycle of violence, that his martyrdom is a martyrdom of peace, and his message is a message of hope. Now, when you look at that in the context of the world in which he lived, a world that was very much ruled by the kind of violence that is perpetrated by ISIS and IS, it makes you realize just how revolutionary his teachings actually were. I mean, think about it. Judas the Galilean, we talked about him, he fought violence with violence. And what did Jesus do? He fought violence with peace. You all know Jesus' teachings, right? What does he say? Turn the other cheek, love your enemy. Let go of your anger? These are revolutionary teachings in a world where eye for eye and tooth for tooth are the norm. The Roman government was right to be suspect of Jesus because those are the kind of teachings that can truly upend the normal ordering of the world. If you don't believe me, I want to end this morning with a very, very short story of the Civil Rights Movement that I think will help explain to you why we truly can beat violence with peace. 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., he was talking to his constituency in Birmingham, Alabama, and there was a man in the audience, a man named Roy James. Roy James stuck out because, first of all, he was white, and second of all, he stuck out because he was actually part of the American Nazi Party. He was actually a lieutenant stormtrooper for them. And as he's sitting in the audience, Listening to King speak, he gets more and more angry to the point where he leaps up out of his seat, runs up on the stage, and he starts pummeling King in the face with his fists. Now, of course, all of King's friends, they jump up and they're trying to tear this guy off of him, right? They're, trying to, they're beating on him and they're trying to get him off. And what's amazing is that in the middle of this, King, he wraps his arms around Roy James and he's trying to deflect the blows from his friends. He's trying to get them off of him. And then he hugs Roy James tight, and he whispers in his ear, I love you. Now, Roy James, in that moment, he breaks down crying. And King, he turns to the crowd, he hoists Roy James' arm up in the air, and this crowd is just looking on in shocked awe, and he says, This man is a brother. That was a very important moment in the civil rights movement because it was the first time that many people believed that Jesus' teachings of nonviolence could actually win that conflict. Up until that point, many people didn't believe it, but that changed people's minds. And so I pose the question to you one more time. Are you willing to die for your religious beliefs? I can tell you that I am because I really believe that Jesus' teachings of peace, hope, and nonviolence, and his example of sacrifice, that those are the things that can truly change the world. And so my prayer for you today is that God might give you the faith to believe so strongly in Jesus' teachings that you would be willing to fight violence with peace. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, Please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.